All right, you guys, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 17. We've been studying the life of David for 100 years, and we're, we're, we're close, a couple months away. We're getting there. Um, but chapter 17 is, a, I, think, I think this is a fascinating chapter. There's all kinds of interesting themes, and so we can talk about whichever ones are most interesting to you. Among them, there is a, a really interesting picture, I think, of the braiding of um, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You're going to see some stuff happen that's like, man, everything's on the line based on how the people behave, what one man in particular does. But it would all be nothing apart from God's over, you know, supervising activity. We'll see that. Um, we're going to see a scene how fear can amp- be amplified into foolishness. I think this is super relevant in our lives. Um, I think, I hope that you'll get, grasp the benefit of reading the text, any text, whatever the passage is, but reading it with an active, um, kind of engaged imagination. Sometimes the Bible will just mention things and just hit it and drop and move on. And I want to be like, no, 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 hang on, look at this. Do you understand what's going on here? Like, we'll try to unpack it. And if we read with a, kind of an attentive sort of imagination, I think that more things will pop. We'll see that. We'll talk about the limits of human wisdom. We can revisit, again, the acceptability of lies, which figure prominently in this passage. And maybe there's other stuff. Who knows? But that, those are the things that caught my eye. So we'll talk about it. Um, but let's go back. It's been a couple weeks. I heard last week was fantastic with the Motleys. Were you guys in here for that? I heard it was just a super, super session. But it means we got to jump. we got to leapfrog back there. So what's been happening in the life of David that sets up chapter 17? Can anybody, like, draw to mind what we've been seeing? David. What the heck is happening in David's life? David's on the run. He's been on the run a lot. Well, who, who's on, what's new about this particular run, Zach? Um, at this point in time, I mean, you've got people cursing at him. Oh, yeah. People are kicking dirt down on him and everything. Who's, who is his chief adversary at this season? Do you remember? Absalom. His son, whose name is Absalom, right? So Absalom has basically made a play to take over the throne, and David is fleeing for his life in a in a different way. It seemed like when he fled from Saul, he fled with a sense of courage. Here, that's a greater sense of fear and trembling, it seems. Okay, anything else? Big things going on in Second Samuel that sets up chapter 17? Zeba's report. What's that? Zeba. Okay, what's going on with Zeba? I thought you said zebra. I'm like, I don't remember any zebras in this story. What's up? What's down with Zeba? Well, he came, comes to report about... Um, um, let me say his name about the grandson of um, Mephibosheth yes so so there's this uh, uh, whole kind of like we don't know who's telling the truth and David doesn't know who's telling the truth and everything's just kind of a mess of all these all these people that are in some way oppositional to David right he's having a rough time okay now as we go into this chapter there's a couple of characters in our cast we gotta remember so the son's name again is Absalom. Absalom. What was his brother's name? Amnon. So you have these two brothers, Absalom and Amnon. Absalom's the one who's making a play on the throne, right? And then there's two other guys we're going to have to watch in chapter 17. And they are Ahithophel and Hushai. So who was Ahithophel again? For those of you that share my problem with proper nouns, Ahithophel. You got anything about him? Gina? Bathsheba's grandpa. Bathsheba's grandfather, yes, yeah, he, he, yes, very good. So Bathsheba's grandfather, so he's kind of got a grudge perhaps against David. Historically was on David's side, 
and is known. What is Hethophel famous for? Do you remember this? What his kind of chief attribute is? Say it again, John. David's top advisor, right? And it says like his advice was like the advice of God, right? Very, very wise, very, very astute. Ahithophel is very widely regarded as like among the most brilliant advisors to the king. But he traded sides. He's left David and he's now giving all of his brilliance, all of his wisdom, all of his insight to Absalom. Okay? And then who is Hushai? You remember him? Which one is he? He's the double agent, okay? Hushai is also one who has been loyal to David and is now pretending to be loyal to Absalom. But he's really just there to, like, throw sand in the gears, right? He's completely on David's side, but he's, he's suited up as if he's on Absalom's side and as though it's going to be tricky. And so what we're going to watch is the battle of the advisors, okay? So um, I don't know. If you guys like uh, Hamilton, you guys Hamilton fans, do you know, like, there's a couple of songs where it's, like, you know, Washington pulls in his cabinet and Jefferson is saying do this and Hamilton is saying do this and they kind of have this battle theme to it. You remember that, those songs? That's what this is. So you got Absalom in the middle and he's saying, Ahithophel, what should we do? And Ahithophel is going to give him a story and then he's like, Hushai, what do you think? And Hushai is going to give a different story and then the king gets to decide which, which side we're going to go. That's, that's essentially the setup for this chapter, okay? So we'll take a look. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Ahithophel said to Absalom, and the, again, the question is, what do we do? And what are they, what's the mission? What are they trying to do? Get David, okay? So, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. And I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror. And then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man that you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. And this plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Okay? Got it? Now, here's what I want you to do. At your table, let's just kind of just take that apart for a second. There are three chief aspects to Ahithophel's plan. Okay? Just, we're just going to do this is basic observation. Okay? So turn around, sit at your tables, give it, give it a minute. What are the three prongs of the Ahithophel plan, and then we'll see what you come up with. Okay, go. arguing there are three main points and you might say there's five and that's fine what do I, whatever but I think there's three so what are, what what's the plan if you if you were to outline a Hithophel give me some Roman numerals here what are we gonna do okay so surprise attack okay so one of the aspects of his plan is right now get him tonight this is the day this is do it so he's weary 
he's, he's on the run, go now, do not delay, strike fast, surprise, let's go, right? That's number one. Y'all agree with that? Number two? Kill David. Okay, that's interesting. And it's not just kill David, but it's only kill David, right? He's very strong on this point. He's like, uh, let's see, um, set out tonight in pursuit of David, attack him. Um, I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. It's, this is not an act of war. This is an execution, right? This is, this is sniper, Right? And honestly, I've often thought, why don't we do that? Right? Like, why do we go to war against it? Why don't you just kill Hitler? You know, just like one narrow boom. That's the, that, and probably because it's illegal or something. But, but, the, but that's, the, that's the strategy, is just kill David. So right, so right now, kill one guy. And then there's one other aspect to the plan that might be less obvious here. Chris? Favor to Absalom by bringing everyone back and rejoicing that, hey, okay. from this evil person that Okay, good. So the result, what, what, what Ahithophel anticipates is the result of the plan is going to be uh, that everybody's going to love you and it'll be great and nobody else is hurt and so nobody's mad that they're widow, you know, they became a widow and so it's going to come. That's the result. But it's, that's, not a, that's a result, not a, not a prong of the attack. Okay, so what's the other aspect of his plan? So right now, only kill David. Kelly Sue? Terrified. Yes, okay, very good. So it's shock and awe, right? And the principal unit of shock and awe is... Bring 12,000 men. That's the plan, right? So David, if we, if we go back and you do the math, David probably has between, if you go back and look, I don't know if you care, but go to 2 Samuel 15. This is David's crowd, okay? David's crowd, 2 Samuel 15, 16, says the king set out with his entire household following him. Okay, so his entire household. I don't know how many people that is, but it's not, it's not 12,000, Okay. Um, and some of them are cooks, right? But he left ten concubines behind to take care of the palace. The king set out with all the people following. They halted some distance away. The men marched past him, the Carathites and Pelathites, and 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath. So there's only 600 military men and a bunch of riffraff. And how many people does Ahithophel want to send? 12,000, okay? So basically it's like, okay, here's what we do. Right now, we quintuple his force. We go tonight and we execute him. That's the plan, okay? Huge shock and awe numbers, immediate strike terror into his heart, just kill David, and then it's all over and done. And what does Absalom think of this plan? Awesome. Sounds great. Now, what is Hushai's job? Just screw it all up, right? So, how do you screw it up? Because it's a good plan. I'm sure Ahishaphel, I mean, I'm sure Hushai is like, well, dang it. I don't know what I'm going to do about this, okay? So, here's what he does. Well, first of all, Absalom, what, what, is, what is Absalom's move when he hears this advice from Ahithophel? He agrees. He thinks it's good, but then what does he do? What is it? Yeah, he said, can I get a second opinion? Everybody in the whole world will tell you this is a good move, right? You should always have multiple counselors. You should never just listen to the first guy that gives you advice, Right? One of the themes of this chapter is, is, frankly, is the limits of human wisdom. What Absalom does here is what you're supposed to do, and it completely screws him, okay? And you're supposed to see that. He's like, hey, we got one counselor. It seems good, but let's be wise. Let's be judicious. Let's be humble. Let's get a multiplicity of counselors into the game. So, Hushai, tell me, what do you think? And that act, which 
anyone would say was the right thing to do is going to totally burn him. Because Hushai over here is going to frustrate his plan. So watch what Hushai does, okay? Absalom said, summon also Hushai the archite so we can hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given his advice. Should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Perfect. However, Hushai replies to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. Okay, this is like a shot. I mean, this is a direct, he's, there's, he's just like, no. This wisest man, the best advisor, bad, wrong. He blew it. He's normally, he gets pretty good, but he's not on his A game. And he's going to completely undercut him. And listen to what he says. Verse 8. You know your, fa- your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father's an experienced fighter. He'll not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, man, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. And then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. Okay. Hushai is so on his A-game here. What is he doing? What is he exploiting with this response? What is it? You're not going to terrify David. Yes. R- yes. That abs- he, says, he says it's not going to, your plan's not going to work. But what is the underlying emotion that he is going to just crush? He's going to stomp on. It's fear, right? I mean, he, he, he knows. Absalom, Absalom is worried. Absalom is anxious about this. He wants to be king, but he knows he's in a difficult situation. He's been given brilliant advice that would have, would have worked if he had just followed it. And instead, Hushai's like, I don't know, man. Your dad is a, that dude is a beast, you know? And man, just imagine how horrible it would be. If he were hiding in a cave and just wiped out your dudes, man, it would ruin the whole thing. And, and, he, and he just... He just plays him. It's just, it's very, very compelling. And if you guys, have you, kn- fear is a liar. Hushai knows that fear is a liar. And so he just starts whispering into his ear and, and just aggravates all of his fears and completely takes him off his game. Kelly? I think there's a little bit of Absalom's arrogance and pride. Yes. So, so if, you, if you can simultaneously, Kelly says there's a lot of, there's some of Absalom's arrogance and pride in there. If you can exploit someone's fear in a way that, that's, that deals with their pride, it's like, oh, no, you're going to win, right? Because these are like, these are weak spots in our, in our system, right? Marty? Similarly, Absalom wasn't a man of war. He was the, a prince. That's right. He didn't, he didn't earn it. It was given. That's, that's such a good point, right? Marty's saying that, that David is a man of war. He has fought, he's been through a million battles. This is not his first fight. But Absalom has just been at the gate, like, whining about being a judge, Right? He does not have that experience. And so Hushai, again, they can play on his fear and begin to just kind of undercut the whole thing. Right? You see what he's doing? It's, it's brilliant. That, that's his job. And he just, he executes it so well. I feel like there was another hand. That's it. Tom? That's cool. One guy says, attack and you will win. And the other guy says, attack and you will lose. Yes. And now Absalom is super. That's right. And you might want to live in a, like, oh, I'm going to be conquer. But that... That latent fear that he exploits is, is just game on. Have you, has anybody seen, one second, then I'll come to you, Chris. Has anybody seen the TV show, uh, you, call, you call things TV shows anymore, the Netflix show, um, uh, Money Heist? Anybody seen Money Heist? Literally no one has seen Money Heist. 
Okay, Terry, thank you. We can be friends, okay. Uh, I'm always, it's always terrifying to like admit what TV shows you watch because somebody's going to be like, oh, you sinner, right? And, and apparently that would be literally everyone in the room. But um, So this is a show produced by pagans, and it has unsavory elements. I'm not endorsing it. All right? Good enough. Okay. But nevertheless, there is an, there's, um, the, the show Money Heist. It's a Spanish show. It's, it's, uh, it's dubbed into English, and it's really pretty brilliant. Brilliant? God, godless, but brilliant? Okay. Um, and uh, the, the setup is there's a guy named The Professor, and The Professor is robbing the Spanish mint. So he goes into the place where they print euro bills and locks the thing up and just prints his own, like, you know, like a billion euros worth of money and all kind of stuff. But what's so interesting about it, he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, tactician and strategist, and he anticipates everything that will go wrong and does go wrong, and he's ready for it, right? Thing after thing after thing. And one of the things that he exploits, there's this beautiful scene where he talks about how audible hallucinations are terrifying. And so, so much of this interaction is taking place over radios. The, 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 the cops can't see what's happening. All they can do is hear what they think is happening. And it's easier to create an audio illusion. And he does this whole big thing about how if we can make them hear what we want them to hear, they will believe what we want them to believe. And he just plays on their fears. That is exactly what, what Hushai is doing. He's like, you know, you don't know the whole story, but I'm going to create an illusion for you and change the whole way the whole thing works, right? And I know this all because I went to Alaska and I was on the plane for about a thousand hours and watched all of it on the plane, right? And um, watch how he does it. Look at, look at this. In verse 2, how does Ahithophel characterize David and his men? Weak. They are weary. They are weak. Okay? How does Hushai characterize uh, these, these men in verse 8? They are fierce as a mama bear robbed of her cubs, Right? Those are very different pictures. You see, so, and the truth is, which one is right? <coughs> they are, they are, they are weary and they are weak. But he's like, yeah, yeah, but, but they are also ferocious, battle, weir, you know, battle-born men of courage. Uh, in verse one, they set out. The, the goal is set out tonight, right? Right now, surprise him. Do it now. This is the moment. Grab it. And in verse eight, what does Hushai say? How does he undercut the value of surprise? Yeah, man, you're not going to... you kidding me? You think you're going to sneak up on David? Have you read any of the earlier parts of this book? Like, you're not going to catch him. He's, he's in a cave, probably where Saul is going to the bathroom, just hanging, you know? Like, he's in a cave. He, you're not going to... You, this guy is telling you, strike now and surprise him. Impossible. You can't surprise him. You'll never get it done, Right? Oh, and not only that, not only will you fail to capture him, but there's a pretty good chance that he's going to capture you. And the word's going to spread. And now Absalom is like, oh, snap, right? So he's a tricky dude, okay? So then, having undercut Ahithophel and basically just denigrated that whole plan, he offers his own. And here's the plan. Verse 11. So I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba... As numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you with you yourself leading them into battle. Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, 
Then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not even a piece of it can be found. Okay, now, Ahithophel's plan had three points. What were the three points? Do you remember any of them? What were they? Okay, so do it right now. And his answer is, what's his answer to the do it right now? Well, I, we'll come back to the do it right now in a second because it's, it'll be easier to see as a subset of, the, of another one. Okay, right. So, yes, so gather. So remember, Ahithophel's plan is bring how many troops? 12,000, which basically he has on the ready. We get everybody right now. We got 12,000 guys. We go tonight, right? What does Hushai say you need to bring? More. Everybody. Like, Everybody from Dan to Beersheba. He's like, basically, you're going against, David's got maybe 1,000 people, maybe 2,000 people. And Hithophel says, let's go after him with 12,000. Let's outnumber him by like five or six, right? And Hushai says, let's outnumber him like 100 to one. You get everybody. Get everybody, everybody, everybody. And the necessary consequence of getting everybody is time. We don't have everybody tonight. We can't go tonight. It's going to be a week. It's going to be a couple weeks. So we're way better. So, so in, in saying, in playing on his fear and saying, we've got to get everybody, 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 what he's really doing is he's just buying time, right? He's saying, this is going to take a couple weeks. Slow down. Sit down. Let's get this right. There's a lot at stake here. Slow down, right? Ahithophel says strike tonight. Hushai's like, it's going to take a while. And then what's the third point of Ahithophel's plan? Literally. Yeah, Ahithophel's. Just the king. Surgical strike. This is an execution. And what is Hushai's plan? Just blow him up. We're gonna, he's, he's like, we're going to besiege the city, right? We're going we're gonna to bring it all in. This is full-scale war. And so at every point, he is directly contradicting him. Surgical strike right now with 12,000 turns into a full-scale war in a month with 100,000, right? So he, and he, he obliterates them. Yeah, John? Another thing about Hushai's plan Okay, I missed. I couldn't. I could barely hear you. Something about pride. What did you say? Oh yeah, for sure. And that's exactly what Kelly said earlier. Is that he's not only appealing to his fear, uh, or not, or not appealing to, but playing on his fear. But he's appealing to his pride. And as a consequence of this, what happens? Who who wins the the debate? Hushai wins, and, and Absalom buys it. So in verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. Now watch this. This is, this is the line I want you to, we're going to talk about this for a second. Why did they believe Hushai instead of Ahithophel? The answer is, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. You guys, this, this particular dance shows up every day in your life, and it completely drives us out of our minds, right? Why did this thing work? Was it because Hushai was a brilliant strategist and he knew how to exploit Absalom's fear, Absalom's pride, how to you know, play, play him like a, you know... What do you play people like? I don't know, but played him. What is there? A, what is that? Like a liar? Oh, okay. All right. Or is it because the Lord is sovereign over all things and had determined to move the thing? 
it's, it's, it, it, this is the weird thing in life, right? Does this trouble you guys? Because I'm like, Lord, I want this thing to happen. So I'm, what do I need to do to make this happen? Like, let me manipulate the situation. Let me win the game. Let me plan. Let me do. Let me, what do you want me to do? Like, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it so I can get this desired end. And then, when he's done all the work, it's like God's just like, okay, blah, blah, you know, he does like this bewitched thing with his nose and it just happens, you know? And how does the world work? Does the world happen because God just says, let it be so? Or does it happen because DFP is slaving away in the mines, making it so, right? Here's what I want you guys to do. I want to take just a minute. You're not going to unpack this entirely, but at your tables, just take another second. How have you ever heard the interplay between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people explained? How do we make sense of it? Why do things happen? How do problems get solved? Is it him? Is it me? Is it us? Is it his work? Like, just give yourselves a minute to like, maybe a couple minutes to talk about it. How have you heard this unpacked? Okay? And go. How... Seconds more, and then we'll come back. Exactly. It's, it's through the comment. You guys have any other thoughts? I'm open to other thoughts. I'm not getting any thoughts. possible way that you figured this out in a minute and a half, but let's just hear kind of what you've heard. All right, so here's, here's where this plays out. And lots of, I mean, this, play, this plays out in a million areas. Evangelism is maybe one of the most stark, right? The Calvinists among us, and I would include myself in that group, would say that God is sovereign over evangelism. That God is sovereign. He calls people to faith. And I believe that that is true. Some would then, then say, well, therefore, why share your faith? 
just don't bother. Like, he's going to just do what he's going to do, and then you can just relax, and you don't have to do anything, right? Um, the more Arminian would say, well, you know, ultimately people are saved, and it is ultimately the mercy of God, but it's all about you, so you better get out there. And by the way, you better do a good job when you do, <laughs> right? Imagine the pressure that the eternal fate of people lies in your hands, right? And this is a hard question. Then you get a guy like the Apostle Paul who literally writes the book on Calvinism. I mean, he writes, he is the, all the theology of election is drawn from Paul's writings, but he shared his faith like a madman everywhere he went at enormous cost, right? So in your own life, there may be things you're like, Lord, I need you to do this. But then perhaps you're also like, and what do I need to do to bring it about? Right? These can be difficult. So what did you guys talk about at your table? Any brilliant insights? Or you can even make it worse if it, if it got worse, you know. But how do you handle these, how do these two things live in your brain? I'm responsible. God is in charge. Dorian? I think something I had a conversation Okay, so go really loud. I want to hear what you say. I had a conversation about this very thing this week with a friend of mine. And I, you know, I grew up with the Calvinistic thinking, and then you meet people who are the, like you said, the Arminian thinking. And the conversation that we have, and I, I wrestle with it, but I think, in, I think in God's mind, which we can't, we can't, um, understand completely his mind, because we're not God. We are created people. I think, in God's mind, he brings those two concepts together, and they make their perfect harmony. God is sovereign over everything, and yet we are responsible for the choices we make. And that's kind of con uh, contradictory in our minds, but in God's mind, it makes perfect sense. And I've come to the point where I just think it's both. But I don't think we can really fully understand it the way God does. And you're right, Paul articulates it in his, um, especially in Romans and Galatians and other things. And we can study it. Um, but it's something that, that I, I read and study daily. And I don't really have a concrete answer other than it's, I think it's, we are responsible at the same time. God is sovereign over everything. And in his mind, that makes perfect, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So you're, it seems like you've gotten to a point where you, you accept both premises are true. I, there are things that I must do, and God will accomplish his purposes regardless of what I do. And that you're at some level willing to say, I don't get that, but he gets that, and that's good enough for me. Yes, and... Um... But it still kind of bothers you. <laughs> okay, yeah, good enough. I just know that he's in control, he's sovereign, he's in control. We are, we are responsible for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's there's and there therein lies the tension. Okay. First, Lily, and then we'll come up to Catherine. So something I was sharing that I found helpful from a Bible study not long ago was uh, someone had defined the difference between God's sovereign will and His will of command. Sovereign will being this is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The words of the prophets have spoken. The word of God spoken. You cannot change it. And yet, he gives us commandments. So there's his will of command in life. So there's, there's a difference between what he expects us and desires us to participate in and what he has already ordained for the foundation of the world. And uh, I like Duran's offering of being in perfect harmony because as uh, Ed Fetzer played that beautiful song this morning, you, as an individual, you only hear the one tune in your own life. But it's built. It's orchestrated. You don't have, I don't know, I, I think when people try and divide these things, it's just you're, you're limiting yourself to your own very narrow 
perspective. God has the orchestration of the universe at his fingertips. It's not one or the other. But I do like, I did find that very helpful in the will of man. Yeah, so let me restate some of that in case you couldn't hear. Lily is essentially observing that when we talk about the will of God, that's a, that's a rather, that's kind of blunt language, okay? And what we mean by that is that God will, God has, and there's different labels people will use for this, but there's in some sense God's ideal situation, right? So God, it's like 1 Thessalonians 4 says it's God's will. Well, first of all, before I even tell you what it is, does God get what he wants? Does God get his will? Okay. However, it is God's will, this is a direct quote, it's God's will that you would avoid sexual immorality. Did he get what he wanted? <laughs> Clearly not, right? Okay, so there's a sense in which he wills goodness, and yet the world is filled with badness. He wills the obedience of his people, and yet we are wretchedly disobedient, right? So there's a sense in which, does God get what he wants? Well, no. Not always. There's this that is like, there's all kinds of stuff that happens that's outside of his will. And yet, there is this other sense of which whatever he decrees will most assuredly come to pass. So when God says, let there be light, there is no argument. There is simply light, right? And so it's helpful when we talk about the will of God to recognize there's these two different circles. Yeah, it'd be lovely if y'all were obedient people, right? But you're not, and so... There's this other sense of nevertheless, your disobedience, and P.S., my disobedience, let's be clear about this, like our disobedience is incapable of thwarting that which he has decreed will certainly come to pass, right? And so that can be a helpful way, or at least, it's not the whole answer, but it's, it's part of the reality that we have to make sense of, is that God does not get all that he wills at, at a certain level, right? Does that make sense? Okay, and Catherine. Um, I often pray... Open my eyes to see what you're doing. Kind of like when, what's his name? Um, the, the prophet that they were surrounding and they're going to kill him. Yeah, see, see the angels on the hills. Yeah. You know, the, the servant was scared and he said, Open my eyes. So, open my eyes to see. Well, you know, the more I do that, the more I, God does show us what. He wants, the more we ask, the more we come to him, the more we fail and get up. But, he, but we still have a choice to do it or not. And, and a lot of times I'm just going, mm -mm, no, not now. But, but I know he's there and I know he will. What he's, he's always working in us, with us. So the more we say open my eyes, the more we come to him, the more we, um, he slowly works us in kind of the direction. That's right. As we agree. And right, okay, and what, Catherine, where I want to go with that is these two circles, there could be like God has a desire, this, this will for your life, and then there's this small circle, smaller circle of what he has decreed will most certainly come to pass. Wouldn't it be lovely if we were so cooperative with him that these circles converged. That what God wants your life to be like is what you want your life to be like. That the, the steps he wants you to take, the action, the things he wants you to say, the people he wants you to pursue. Like what if you made it your point that you will bring those two circles into convergence more than, more than they are presently. Probably never can complete convergence. 
among other things, not all of your life is within your own control. But we could see these things coming to pass, perhaps. Well, two circles like this, the ideal will, the perfect will of God, that you would avoid sexual morality, and then the meaning that one of those things that clearly doesn't happen broadly, and then the more his, his will of decree or will of command. Well, are you using command to use your big circle? Or would he decree? Are your circles in a different, you have different circles than the way I'm characterizing it? Okay, all right. That's good enough. Okay, but so we're going to keep moving because we're running out of time. There's more things I want you to see here. But just, we're, we're going we're to start more, more fires than we're going to put out here this, this morning. So many different things. It's worth wrestling through the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Let's keep going. Hushai. His plan works, but he's got one more key task. What's the next thing he's got to do? He's got to inform David, right? David, I just bought you time. Get out, right? That's, that's what's got to happen. So how's he going to do that? This, this is hard for me. I don't like this next passage. Verse 15, Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I've advised them to do so and so. Now, Send a message immediately and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the desert. Cross over without fail or the king and all the people with him will be swallowed up. Okay, what he's saying is, dude, I just bought you time, but I don't know how much time. Ahithophel's over here. He's, all, he's mad, but Absalom is going with me, and he might wise up. So get out, get out, get out. He bought him time. That's, that's the whole thing. Get, get the message. And so watch this. Verse 17. Jonathan and Ahimaaz, uh, how do you say this? Ahimaaz. We're staying at Enrogel. A servant girl was to go and inform them, and then they were to go to tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. So there's going to be this game of, like, you tell so-and-so, and they tell so-and-so, and, like, we're going to pass it down through this secret network of, like, you know, underground agents and get word to David, okay? But the problem is, verse 18, a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left quickly and went to the house of a man in some place. And they had a well in his courtyard and he climbed down into it. And a wife covered it and spread it over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. And no one knew anything about it. And when Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? Different Jonathan, by the way. Jonathan's dead. This is not David's best friend. Just a different dude. And the woman answered them, they crossed over the brook. What do you call that? That is a lie. That is an overt lie. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. All right. We've had this conversation a handful of times already because it keeps coming up. I'm, in the, I'm a hardcore never lie camp. A lie is never justified. And I might be wrong. Okay. This, here's, here's, this, there's a handful of places. like the, People love talking about the midwives, Moses' midwives. And they're like, you know, they're not killing the babies. And they lie to Pharaoh about it. And da, da, da. Um, and I have generally been of the opinion, uh, hold the belief that, that uh, it's always wrong to lie and there's another way to do it. And sometimes we'll lie simply because we want to avoid pain. And uh, it's as much about avoiding our own punishment or, you know, even if, even if it's an unjust punishment, I just don't like to hurt. Like I want to get away with things. I'm going to tell lies so that I don't have to suffer. This text challenges that. And so I, I have like a commitment. I just always want to like submit to the scriptures. And if I'm wrong then I want to get right. And, I, and I'm, I don't know. But this is a hard text for me because it seems to me that the narrator here is, is telling the story of what they did. There's no question. They overtly, explicitly lied. And I find no hint in this text that it's 
that there's any criticism suggested of that. Rather, it seems to me that they're being commended for what they did to get the message to David. And again, I might be wrong about this, or I might have been wrong for the last 30 years about this. I don't know. But this, is, this, is, this passage really challenges my sense that there's never a time to lie, because they clearly lie, and I think, the narr- I think the narrator is suggesting that it was okay. I don't know what the heck to do with that. Marty, can you rescue me? Well, no. But <laughs> <laughs> I can't rescue you, but like the midwives, they were commended. They were commended for trusting in God and not fearing Pharaoh. And I think maybe it's a part of a hard attitude. What's the motivation? Is it to get avoid pain? Is it a, you know, avoid consequence for your own bad? Or is it like being directed by the Lord? And I would say it would be an extreme rare, rare, rare occasion where a lie would be something that's good. But yeah. Yeah, maybe. And I, and I confess that one of, the, one of my problems with saying, like, under this circumstance, you're allowed to lie, is that, like, oh, let's go. Because, I mean, from now on, it's like, hey, I can either pay for my children's college or I can be honest with my taxes. If I do this, it's going to be so much more, ben- you know, like, as soon as you do that, I just feel like we can, ju- if, I, if I can justify any lie, I can justify any lie, you know, all of them. And I don't know. So it's trouble, it troubles me. Gary, what do you think? In times of war, some of the rules are different. Yep. You know, like murdering Zach would be wrong every day on an everyday basis. But if he was my enemy in war and I set an ambush for him and he walks down the path and doesn't realize he's about to be murdered, well, that's clever. That's not murder. If it's war. Be on the lookout. <laughs> we might declare war. Well, and, and so the thing is, and now the... Uh, people, have, people have been troubled by this suggestion before, but God can and does justly take life. There is a place for the taking of life. We would tend to think that lying is worse than murdering, but um, when God, God kills people, do you know this? God kills people. God never lies. Right? It's just, it's just, I get wrapped around the axle on this, okay? So yes, we can't kill Zach unless we declare war against him, and then we can just do whatever we wish. I think that's, that's true. Bob? Well, what if this isn't a lie? Um, the, the Hebrew word here that, in the ESV is brook, and they say it's, it's only used once in the entire Bible, and they say the interpretation is uncertain. It could be a, also a little water or a well. So maybe she was playing the word game and it was not being clear, and she actually was saying they're in the well, but was saying something that was so unclear that they couldn't see something. I like this. This is good. Okay. The reason I, it reminds me of, you know the famous Corey Ten Boom thing? Where Corey and uh, her sister Betsy, Betsy thought you could never lie. Corey thought that was ridiculous. And there was this great moment where, like, they had Jews hidden in a secret passage, in a secret, like, storage place under the table. And the Nazis come in and they're like, where are the Jews? And they're like, she's like, they're under the table. And they look under the table and they're like, shut up, you, you know. But they were under the table, right? And so there was this double entendre to that. So maybe, I don't know. Okay, everybody wants to speak to this. Kelly? <laughs> I just wanted to mention Rahab, too. about the spies. Yeah, there's a couple. The midwives, those women. Did you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> maybe women can lie, but men can't. I don't know. <laughs> wait, wait, go, wait, hang on. Too much laughter. What? She's celebrated in multiple places. Yes, for sure. You're, you're saying that it seems like there's no criticism in the text here. I would say Rahab is an example where she's overtly 
Yes. Yeah, and I feel like the, uh, those other instances have been, uh, we got to keep moving, have, have been, I feel like there's other things that they're doing that they may be being commended for despite their lie. This one, it feels pretty naked. Like, they're just, she's just lying. Unless Bob's right, which would be awesome. Okay, we got to keep moving. I know there's a bunch of hands. A couple more things I want to hit before you guys, before I dismiss you, so I apologize for not having space for all. All right, so whatever happens, God keeps them safe. Once again, you know, thing, things have to play out. So look at this. Ah, there's too many, too many things. Verse 21. After the men had gone, two of them climbed out of the well. They went to inform King David, and they said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. Now, here's what I want you to notice there. That's like a throwaway line. Hey, cross the river. Go. You guys, it's, they have walked 20 miles today. Okay, they're fleeing for their lives. At the end of a 20-mile run, it's nighttime and the river is raging. And the answer is get across the river. Nobody wants to cross the river. They are tired. It's cold. It's dangerous to do this in the middle of the night. And yet at the end of this torturous day in which God has sovereignly created space for them to be safe, there is still work to do. There is still suffering to endure, Right? And we're back in that sandwich. First, Ahithophel had to, I mean, not Ahithophel, Hushai had to crush it, right? And then God had to, like, bewitch the people to be stupid. And then David and his guys, they had to be like, oh, man, this is the last thing I want to do right now is cross a raging river at night after a 20-mile journey. But okay. And welcome to the universe, you guys. That's just the way it's going to be, right? There are things that God will go before you and set the way for. But then you just got to get into the river, sometimes at night. And that's what they do. Dig it? So go on, have at it. Okay? And, but read the text in a way that those kind of things might, you might notice. Slow it down. What was it like to be told to cross that river? Imagine those things. All right. God keeps them safe. Humans have to do the work. They get across. And then this. I think this is a surprising moment. Then Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed. He saddled his donkey, set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. Whoa. Did you see that coming? Like, again, boom, 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 then he hung himself, and then what the heck happened, okay? So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. That comes completely out of nowhere to me. Like, I just did not anticipate that that's what was about to happen. Why does he do it? Why does he hang himself? John? Because he knew what was going to happen, and he knew what's absolutely think I think John is exactly right. I think at the surface level... It looks like he just took his toys and went home. You know, like, he didn't take my advice, fine. You know, and he's just ashamed or he's mad or he just, he doesn't, you know, he's lost his job. He feels insignificant, all that, da-da-da. I think it's more than that. This dude is on point, and he knows, okay, great. You just followed the advice that's going to cost you the kingdom. And when it does, my head is on the block. Like, he is a traitor. He's a traitor to King David. I think it's more than just shame. It's more than just being grouchy. He's like, well... I can tell you right now how this story is going to end. You blew it, and that's going to cost me. And he hangs himself. This is such a strong response. So, yeah. Okay, Suzanne and then Chris. He may have also felt that, like, the Lord had withdrawn favor from him. He may have felt the Lord had done what? Ah, yes. And then just, I mean, like, yes, I think he knew that, yeah, I'm a goner. when this goes badly. But, like, he, that probably... Yeah. He may have some sense. Not only is he a traitor against David, but he's a traitor against the Lord. That He must be thinking, my advice is so much better than your, the other guy's advice. How could you possibly have chosen this and perhaps concluded, 
there's more going more going on here than meets the eye, right? I, I have not supported the Lord's anointing. Yes, and therefore, and that's such a massive theme through this whole book, right? I did not support the Lord's anointing, so it's going to go poorly. Okay, you get real quick, and then I got one more idea, and then you got to go to church. And the uh, to add part of what you were saying a while ago with Hushai's first response to, to Absalom. Um, I feel like there's the implicit thoughts, and that's when I read this chapter, that's all I'm thinking about, are what Hushai adds about the being strong like a mother bear with her cubs, and even those who are like a lion are fearful of David, of him maybe not being able to pin down why those two animals are important, but David kills them to defend the sheep. That's right. David kills Goliath right after that, of being like something about David going along with the uh, being fearful of the anointed, the Lord's anointed, of being like, he does whatever I'm doomed. I'm not just That's right. dead on earth. I might be doomed for eternity because I've disobeyed the Lord. Yeah, I think Ahithophel, in this whole, when this whole thing creators, Ahithophel realizes he's on the wrong side of David. He's on the wrong side of the Lord. And this is going to end very badly for him. Okay? Now, what's interesting about that, here's the final thing, just to kind of put a bow on this, is one of the themes of this chapter is the limits of human wisdom. Ahithophel is on point. He is... He's the great advisor to the kings. His advice in this moment is right. And he probably is rightly reckoning how this thing is going to play out. But then he kills himself. And there is something, you guys, there's something about this that, um, do you guys know David Foster Wallace? Is that a meaningful name? He gave, gave us, among other things, he gave this famous graduation speech that's been played about 10 million times. It's actually really, really brilliant. Um, and he is a very wise, insightful man who killed himself. Right? And, there's, and that's exactly what we see here. There is something, I think this chapter wants to warn us. Absalom does the right thing in seeking wise counsel. Ahithophel gives the wise counsel. Ahithophel rightly recognizes how this story is going to end. And yet all of that wisdom, all of that human wisdom, it all comes to nothing. It ends in a suicide. In a, it's going to end in a military defeat. It all blows up. And though I think God values wisdom and it is good to do things that are wise, I just know there are things in my own mind that seem right to me, that I've followed the rules of getting wise counsel. And, just, you know, the, and yet there are, there are moments that it cannot take you far enough. The limits of, I think, this, I think this chapter wants us to see the limits of human wisdom set against the brilliance of God's ultimate purposes. And when you find yourself, and you, and you will, I do, find myself believing things, reasoning things, making sense of things that makes perfect sense to me and yet contradicts God's word. And when that happens, it's just a decision to make. Am I going like, to give my human wisdom the preeminent position in my life or will I bend the knee to scripture, right? And I just encourage you, I think this wants us to see that as brilliant as you are, as reasoned as you've been, as much wisdom as you've sought, at the end of the day, man, you just want to surrender to the scriptures because we're just not that smart, even when we can't figure out the error of our thinking. Okay? All for now. Thanks.